Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Rise of Universities by Charles Homer Haskins. Published in 1923, the book takes a look at the birth, development, and journey of universities through the centuries. It's quite easy for us to take universities for granted, but this book highlights some of the earlier days where its existence was not that certain. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. I am grateful that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. I'd like to say thanks to some listeners for some amazing reviews and messages this week. DBRAC10 on iTunes. I'm honored to be your go-to podcast for sleep and that you find it relaxing. Jono, thanks again for sending thanks on Podbean. John R. on Twitter, thanks for the mention. And massive thank you to Modern Day Icarus for the shoutouts on Instagram. I'm glad the podcast is helping. The support of listeners is much appreciated, and if you felt the podcast helpful, Please leave a review or comment in your favourite podcast player or the podcast player that you're listening on now. If you would like, you can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com 
where you can support the podcast. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Boy to Sleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the ratings. The Rise of Universities by Charles Homer Haskins Gurney Professor of History and Political Science Dean of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, Harvard University Chapter 1 The Earliest Universities Universities like cathedrals and parliaments are a product of the Middle Ages. The Greeks and the Romans, strange as it may seem, had no universities in the sense in which the word has been used for the past seven or eight centuries. They had higher education, but the terms are not synonymous. Much of their instruction in law, rhetoric and philosophy it would be hard to surpass, but it was not organised into the form of permanent institutions of learning. A great teacher like Socrates gave no diplomas. If a modern student sat at his feet for three months, he would demand a certificate, something tangible and external to show for it. An excellent theme, by the way, for a Socratic dialogue. Only in the 12th and 13th centuries do there emerge in the world those features of organised education with which we are most familiar. All that machinery of instruction represented by faculties and colleges and courses of study, examinations and commencements, and academic degrees. In all these matters, we are the heirs and successors, not of Athens and Alexandria, but of Paris and Bologna. The contrast between these earliest universities and those of today is of course broad and striking. Throughout the period of its origins, the medieval university had no libraries, laboratories, or museums, no endowments or buildings of its own. It could not possibly have met the requirements of the Carnegie Foundation. As a historical textbook from one of the youngest of the American universities tells us, with an unconscious touch of local colour, it had none of the attributes of the material existence which with us are so self-evident. The medieval university was, in the fine old phrase of Pasquier, built of men. Such a university had no board of trustees and published no catalogue. It had no student societies, except so far as the university itself was fundamentally a society of students. No college journalism, no dramatics, no athletics, 
none of those outside activities which are the chief excuse for inside inactivity in the American college. And yet, great as these differences are, the fact remains that the university of the 20th century is the lineal descendant of medieval Paris and Bologna. They are the rock whence we were hewn, the hole of the pit whence we were digged. The fundamental organisation is the same. The historic continuity is unbroken. They created the university tradition of the modern world, that common tradition which belongs to all our institutions of higher learning, the newest as well as the oldest, and which all college and university men should know and cherish. The origin and nature of these earliest universities is the subject of these three lectures. The first will deal with university institutions, the second with university instruction, the third with the life of university students. In recent years, the early history of universities has begun to attract the serious attention of historical scholars and medieval institutions of learning have at last been lifted out of the region of myth and fable, where they long lay obscured. We now know that the foundation of the University of Oxford was not one of many virtues which the millennial celebration could properly ascribe to King Alfred, that Bologna did not go back to the Emperor Theodosius, and the University of Paris did not exist in the time of Charlemagne, or for nearly four centuries afterward. It is hard, even for the modern world, to realise that many things had no founder or fixed date of beginning, but instead just grew, arising slowly and silently, without definite record. This explains why, in spite of all the researches of Father Denifel and Dean Rashdall and the local antiquaries, the beginnings of the oldest universities are obscure and often uncertain, so that we must content ourselves sometimes with very general statements. The occasion for the rise of universities was a great revival of learning, not that revival of the 14th and 15th centuries to which the term is usually applied, but an earlier revival, less known though in its way quite significant, which historians now call the Renaissance of the 12th century. So long as knowledge was limited to the seven liberal acts of the early Middle Ages, there could be no universities, for there was nothing to teach beyond the bare elements of grammar, rhetoric, 
logic, and still barer notions of arithmetic, astronomy, geometry, and music, which did duty for an academic curriculum. Between the years 1100 and 1200, however, there came a great influx of new knowledge into Western Europe, partly through Italy and Sicily, but chiefly through the Arab scholars of Spain, the works of Aristotle, Euclid, Ptolemy, and the Greek physicians, the new arithmetic, and those texts of Roman law which had lain hidden through the Dark Ages. In addition to those elementary propositions of triangle and circle, Europe now had those books of plane and solid geometry which have done duty in schools and colleges ever since. Instead of the painful operations with Roman numerals, how painful one can readily see by trying a simple problem of multiplication or division with these characters. It was now possible to work readily with Arabic figures. In the place of Bothius, the master of them that know, became the teacher of Europe in logic, metaphysics and ethics. In law and medicine, men now possessed the fullness of ancient learning. This new knowledge burst the bonds of the cathedral and monastery schools and created the learned professions. It drew over mountains and across the narrow sea eager youths who, like Chaucer's Oxford clerk of a later day, would gladly learn and gladly teach to form in Paris and Bologna those academic guilds which have given us our first and our best definition of a university, a society of masters and scholars. To this general statement concerning the 12th century, there is one partial exception, the Medical University of Salerno. Here, a day's journey to the south of Naples, in territory at first Lombard and later Norman, but still in close contact with the Greek East. A school of medicine had existed as early as the middle of the 11th century, and for perhaps 200 years thereafter, it was the most renowned medical centre in Europe. In this city of Hippocrates, the medical writings of the ancient Greeks were expounded and even developed on the side of anatomy and surgery. While its teachings were condensed into pithy maxims of hygiene, which have not yet lost their vogue, after dinner walk a mile, etc. Of the academic organisation of Salerno, we know nothing before 1231, and when in this year the standardising hand of Frederick II regulated its degrees Salerno had already been distanced by newer universities farther north. Important in the history of medicine 
It had no influence on the growth of university institutions. If the University of Salerno is older in time, that of Bologna has a much larger place in the development of higher education. And while Salerno was known only as a school of medicine, Bologna was a many-sided institution, though most noteworthy as the centre of the revival of the Roman law. Contrary to a common impression, the Roman law did not disappear from the West in the early Middle Ages, but its influence was greatly diminished as a result of the Germanic invasions. Side by side with the Germanic codes, Roman law survived as the customary law of the Roman population, known no longer through the great law books of Justinian, but in elementary manuals and form books which grew thinner and more jejune as the time went on. The Digest, the most important part of the Corpus Juris Civilis, disappears from view between 603 and 1076. Only two manuscripts survived. In Maitland's phrase, it barely escaped with its life. Legal study persisted, if at all, merely as an apprenticeship in the drafting of documents, a form of applied rhetoric. Then, late in the 11th century, and closely connected with the revival of trade and town life, came a revival of law, foreshadowing the renaissance of the century which followed. This revival can be traced at more than one point in Italy, perhaps not first at Bologna, but here it is soon found at centre for the geographical reasons which, then as now, made the city the meeting point of the chief routes of communication in northern Italy. Sometime before 1100, we hear of a professor named Pippo, the bright and shining light of Bologna. By 1119, we meet with the phrase Bologna Doctor. At Bologna, as at Paris, the great teacher stands at the beginning of the university development. The teacher who gave Bologna its reputation was one Inerius, perhaps the most famous of the many great professors of law in the Middle Ages. Just what he wrote and what he taught are still subjects of dispute among scholars but he seems to have fixed the method of glossing the law texts upon the basis of a comprehensive use of the whole corpus juris, as contrasted with the mere epitomes of the preceding centuries, fully and finally separating the Roman law from rhetoric and establishing it firmly as a subject of professional study. Then, about 1140, Gratian, a monk of San Felice, composed the Decretum, which became the standard text in canon law, 
thus marked off from theology as a distinct subject of higher study, and the preeminence of Bologna as a school was fully assured. A student class had now appeared, expressing itself in correspondence and in poetry, and by 1158 it was sufficiently important in Italy to receive a formal grant of rights and privileges from Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, though no particular town or university is mentioned. By this time, Bologna had become the resort of some hundreds of students, not only from Italy, but from beyond the Alps. Far from home and undefended, they united for manual protection and assistance, and this organization of foreign or transmontane students was the beginning of the university. In this union, they seem to have followed the example of the guilds, already common in Italian cities. Indeed, the word university means originally such a group or corporation in general, and only in time did it come to be limited to guilds of masters and students. Historically, the word university has no connection with the universe or the universality of learning. It denotes only the totality of a group whether of barbers, carpenters, or students, did not matter. The students of Bologna organized such a university first as a means of protection against the town's people, for the price of rooms and necessaries rose rapidly with the crowd of new tenants and consumers and the individual student was helpless against such profiteering. United, the students could bring the town to terms by the threat of departure as a body, secession, for the university, having no buildings, was free to move. And there are many historic examples of such migrations. Better rent one's room for less than not rent them at all, and so the student organisations secured the power to fix the prices of lodgings and books through their representatives. Victorious over the townsmen, the students turned on their other enemies, the professors. Here the threat was a collective boycott, and as the masters lived at first wholly from the fees of their pupils, this threat was equally effective. The professor was put under bond to live up to the minute set of regulations, which guaranteed his students the worth of the money paid to each. We read in the earliest statutes, in 1317, that a professor might not be absent without leave, even a single day, and if he desired to leave town, he had to make a deposit to ensure his return. If he failed to secure an audience of five for a regular lecture, 
he was fined as if absent. A poor lecture indeed, which could not secure five hearers. He must begin with the bell and quit within one minute after the next bell. He was not allowed to skip a chapter in his commentary, or postpone a difficulty to the end of the hour, and he was obliged to cover ground systematically, so much in each specific term of the year. No one might spend the whole year on introduction and bibliography. Coercion of this sort presupposes an effective organisation of the student body, and we hear of two and even four universities of students, each composed of nations and presided over by a rector. Emphatically, Bologna was a student university, and Italian students are still quite apt to demand a voice in university affairs. When I first visited the University of Palermo, I found it just recovering from a riot in which the students had broken the front windows in a demand for more frequent, and thus less comprehensive, examinations. At Padua's seventh centenary last May, the students practically took over the town, with a program of processions and ceremonies quite their own, and an amount of noise and tumult which almost broke up the most solemn occasions, and did break the windows of the greatest hall in the city. Excluded from the universities of students, the professors also formed a guild or college, requiring for admission thereto certain qualifications which were ascertained by examination, so that no student could enter save by the guild's consent. And inasmuch as ability to teach a subject is a good test of knowing it, the student came to seek the professor's license as a certificate of attainment, regardless of his future career. This certificate, the license to teach, thus became the earliest form of academic degree. Our higher degrees still preserve this tradition in the words master and doctor, originally synonymous, while the French even have a license. A master of arts was once qualified to teach the liberal arts, a doctor of laws, a certified teacher of law, and the ambitious student sought the degree and gave an inaugural lecture, even when he expressly disclaimed all intention of continuing in the teaching profession. Already we recognise at Bologna the standard academic degrees, as well as the university organisation, and well-known officials like the rector. Other subjects of study appeared in course of time, arts, medicine and theology, but Bologna was preeminently a school of civil law, 
and as such it became the model of university organisation for Italy, Spain and southern France, countries where the study of law has always had a political and social as well as merely academic significance. Some of these universities became Bologna's competitors, like Montpellier and Orleans, as well as the Italian schools near home. Frederick II founded the University of Naples in 1224, so that the students of his Sicilian kingdom could go to Ghibelline schools at home instead of the Gulfic Centre in the north. Rival Padua was founded two years earlier as a secession from Bologna, and only last year, on the occasion of Padua's 700th anniversary, I saw the ancient feud healed by the kiss of peace, bestowed on Bologna's rector amid the encores of 10,000 spectators. Padua, however, scarcely equaled Bologna in our period, even though at a later age, Portia sent thither for legal authority, and though the university still shines with the glory of Galileo. In Northern Europe, the origin of universities must be sought at Paris, in the Cathedral School of Notre Dame. By the beginning of the 12th century in France and the Low Countries, learning was no longer confined to monasteries, but had its most active centres in the schools attached to the cathedrals, of which the most famous were those of Liège, Rennes, Laon, Paris, Orleans and Chartres. The most notable of these schools of the liberal arts was probably Chartres, distinguished by a canoeist like St. Ives, and by famous teachers of classics and philosophy like Bernard and Thierry. As early as 991, a monk of Rheim, Reicher describes the hardship of his journey to Chartres in order to study the aphorisms of Hippocrates of Cos, while from 12th century John of Salisbury, the leading northern humanist of the age, has left us an account of the masters which we shall later have occasion to cite. Nowhere else today can we drop back more easily into a cathedral city of the 12th century, the peaceful town still dominated by the church and sharing now as then. By the time the cathedral stood complete, with its dedicated shapes of saints and kings, it had ceased to be an intellectual centre of the first importance, overshadowed by Paris, fifty-odd miles away, so that Chartres never became a university. The advantages of Paris were partly geographical, partly political, as the capital of the new French monarchy, but something must be set down to the influence of a great teacher 
in the person of Abelard, this brilliant young radical, with his persistent questioning and his scant respect for titled authority, drew students in large numbers wherever he taught, whether at Paris or in the wilderness. At Paris, he was connected with the church of Mont Saint Genevieve longer than with the cathedral school, but resort to Paris became a habit in his time, and in his way, he had a significant influence on the rise of the university. In an institutional sense, the university was a direct outgrowth of the School of Notre Dame, whose chancellor alone had authority to license teaching in the diocese, and thus kept his control over the granting of university degrees, which here, as at Bologna, were originally teacher's certificates. The early schools were within the cathedral precincts of the Illa della Site, that tangled quarter about Notre Dame pictured by Victor Hugo, which has long since been demolished. A little later, we find masters and scholars living on the little bridge, which connected the island with the left bank of the Seine. This bridge gave its name to a whole school of philosophers, the Parvapontani, but by the 13th century they have overrun the left bank, thenceforth the Latin Quarter of Paris. At what date Paris ceased to be a cathedral school and become a university, no one can say, though it was certainly before the end of the 12th century. Universities, however, like to have precise dates to celebrate, and the University of Paris has chosen 1200, the year of its first royal character. In that year, after certain students had been killed in a town and gown altercation, King Philip Augustus issued a formal privilege which punished his pavot and recognised the exemption of the students and their servants from lay jurisdiction, thus creating that special position of students before the courts, which has not yet wholly disappeared from the world's practice, though generally from its law. More specific, the first papal privilege, the Bullparen Centarium of 1231, issued after two years' cessation of lectures growing out of a riot, in which a band of students, having found wine that was good and sweet to drink, beat up the tavern keeper and his friends till they turned suffered from a pevet and his men, a dissension in which the 13th century clearly saw the hand of the devil. Confirming the existing exemptions, the Pope goes on to regulate the discretion of the Chancellor in conferring the license, at the same time that he recognises the right of the Masters 
and students to make constitutions and ordinances regulating the manner and time of lectures and disputations, the costume to be worn, attendance at the master's funerals, the lectures of bachelors, necessarily more limited than those of fully-fledged masters, the price of lodgings and the coercion of members. Students must not carry arms, and only those who frequent the schools regularly are to enjoy the exemptions of students, the interpretation in practice being attendance at not less than two lectures a week. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you found it a good book to listen to while you slowly fall asleep. If you're not quite tired yet, You're always welcome to listen to another book. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new episode very soon. Good night.